Hello there, and welcome to another Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox. And I'm Kate Nishimura. How's the how's your spring going? What are you doing to keep busy? Besides That's a good composing. Question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> composing a lot. I've got a couple deadlines right now. Um, but aside from that, spring spring has been really nice. I have um, pretty intense spring allergies every year. Oh, and no. just within the last couple of days, I've noticed <clears throat> as I clear my throat, uh, so much phlegm and my eyes are just like so itchy. I know this is wonderful podcast content, really. It's just, too much. I know it's just, anyway, I have a, I really, really love the outdoors. Um, and mm-hmm. so I refuse to come inside even when my eyes are burning. Um, but I have really been enjoying, um, starting my first vegetable garden in the backyard yes. and seeing things grow. We've been following you um, on this journey. This is very exciting. <laughs> I have one strawberry that is red as of today, and it's very, very exciting. I want to go out and pick it, but I'm going to yep. let it grow for a little longer. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been nice to have some nice weather. What about you? Oh, I know. Same. Well, not the same. I mean, I, I, you, you, you and others inspire me to go outside more, so I've been doing that, which has been <laughs> Good. great. But um, great. I, I've been reading more. I, have, mm-hmm. I was actually just sent a, a list Oh, soon to be list. We got an email about a seminar, a spring seminar, and asked us th- what are three life changing books or books that are changing mm-hmm. your life currently. So I've been nice. uh, getting uh, some of those. One of them is a, actually the, the Horizon Leans Forward by some of our past nice. BRP guests, which is exciting. So I'll be getting that yeah, when I move great. to the States because I'm cheap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I've been reading books. What are you reading now? Well, thank you for asking, Kate. <laughs> Uh, this one is, has been uh, recommended by numerous uh, conductors and, and leaders that I've been listening to on other podcasts. Actually, it was first recommended to me by uh, Mallory Thompson at the UBC Conducting Symposium. Mm. And uh, it's The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. Greatness yes. isn't born, it's grown. Here's how. <laughs> but uh, So I'm just kind of diving into that a little bit. It's a great book. And then my other book that I'm reading was recommended to me by today's guest. And that book, before I tell you about the guest, which we will, folks, just hang on, hang on. Um, it's, <laughs> called From, it's called From the Ashes by Jesse Thistle. But it's, it's a, a really powerful book. Hearing his story, is, it's, just, it's really hard. It's really hard, but it, it just opens your eyes and kind of gives you a new perspective of things you, you just don't think about. And I think as, as music right. educators or as educators in general, it's important to hear these perspectives. And at the beginning, when he talks about going to school and, and how he was acting as a student um, and what kind of triggered those things, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard. You really never know who you're teaching, like truly. Yeah, for so sure. So it's, it's always important to, you know, be supportive and someone who's not going to belittle and make things worse yeah. than they already are. Because this book is my book. Yeah. Anyway, I highly recommend. Um, what are you reading, Kate? Actually, the book that you're reading is on my list um, to get from the library one time soon when it's available. So um, I'm excited to read it. But uh, I'm reading a, a book that has nothing to do with music at all. Um, but it's called Bringing Nature Home by Doug Tallamy. Um, and it's all about how uh, native plants, so plants that that were kind of meant to grow here before all the development and everything, um, how planting native plants in your 
garden and your outdoor spaces um, can help to sustain wildlife and actually um, contribute positively to rebuilding some essential habitats and ecosystems. So it's uh, right up my alley, of course. Um, but since go. this is my first first year of having my own outdoor space, uh, it's it's been really eye-opening as to what I can do as an individual to contribute mm -hmm. to the environment that I live in. So um, yeah, and actually I heard about this book on another podcast and we are not in competition with them or anything because it's, as I said, <laughs> not music related. But um, anyone else out there who's interested in gardening and things like that can check out this podcast. It's called The Green File and it's hosted Green by File. Ben and Mark Cullen. Um, yeah, and I actually went to high school with Ben Cullen. And so it's huh. been really fun to kind of rediscover like what he's doing now. And um, yeah, so shout out to, to them for any there gardening folks out there. Go check it out. <laughs> yeah. You green yeah. thumbs, go check it out. Exactly. <laughs> my only, my only non-music job as a summer, you know, as a student was landscaping. So oh, really? I didn't know that about Kind of like you. gardening. Yeah. Well, it, it, yeah. if you think yeah. of anyone who should be a landscaper, it's not me. Like I'm not built. <laughs> I'm so weak. That's true. <laughs> like lifting. <laughs> One time I had to lay sod for an Elton John concert. That was very exciting. What? That's yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, among other uh, exciting experiences, you know, edging. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what else. <laughs> Am I talking about this? Very cool. Anyway, today's guest, Dr. Angela Schroeder, who is currently Associate Professor of Music at the University of Alberta, where she's Director of Bands and conducts the Symphonic Wind Ensemble, among other ensembles, and is doing amazing things, which we talked about in today's episode. But it was just, it was great to, to talk with her. And uh, as we mentioned, uh, I, I didn't really know much about her. And it was so interesting to hear her path and all the other things too. Just, she's an inspirational human being. Yeah, for sure. I don't want to give away any spoilers because y'all should just go and listen to the episode. Um, but truly, it was really, really um, inspirational. I actually like teared up a little bit at a yeah. particular moment, which like, it doesn't happen to me very often. So speaks highly of Angela and all that she had to share. Before we get to that great episode, please do us a huge favor and head over to uh, Apple Podcasts and give the Band Room Podcast a rating and a review. Or if you're listening to this podcast on another podcast platform, that is excellent too. Please subscribe mm -hmm. to the Band Room Podcast or like or share with a friend or colleague or whoever, uh, because it really does help others to find the podcast. Absolutely. And thank you to all of you who have gone and done that already. It's a great help. We thank you. We cherish you. And we appreciate you for going to do yes, those things. Do. But we're not going to waste too much more time. We recorded a fun bonus episode with Angela. We talked about famous composers and some of our experiences with them. Um, they're mm -hmm. no longer with us. So that's why we felt it okay to share these stories. <laughs> and you can hear these stories about composers like Alfred Reed and Michael Colgrass. If you become a patron of the Bandroom podcast by supporting us through Patreon, and you can learn more about that by visiting patreon.com slash bandroom pod, where you can have access to those episodes and many more. But without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Angela Schroeder. Here we are, 
for another exciting Bandroom podcast. And uh, today we have the great pleasure of speaking to Dr. Angela Schroeder, who is Director of Bands Associate Professor at the University of Alberta. So welcome to the Bandroom, Angela. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really touched and honored that you would have me and I'm looking forward to chatting with both of you. Yeah, this is exciting. Mm-hmm. And we're... Um, we, we mentioned this before we chatted, but you are the first official guest from the great province of Alberta. Yeah, what, no pressure there at all, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just, yeah, you're representing the whole province. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a, an Alberta girl, so it's really, it's special to be that first person to talk about Alberta a little bit. There you and, go. Uh, awesome. Kind of give my perspective on things, so yeah, looking forward to it. Well, why don't we start at the beginning then? Uh, could you tell us where, why, and how you started your musical journey? Well, like I said, I'm from Alberta, so I grew up in Calgary. And uh, it's just amazing and fortuitous that I ended up in Edmonton, the biggest rivalry uh, that there is, is Calgary and Edmonton, mm-hmm. of course. But uh, <laughs> it's really it's wonderful to be somewhere that... Um, people know me, they knew me growing up in this musical environment, but also I can be far enough removed from Calgary as my hometown to do my own thing in Edmonton. But uh, in Calgary, uh, there are so many wonderful things to say about people that influenced me, the schooling that I had. I went through wonderful programs, uh, strong band programs in junior high school and high school. And uh, it never really occurred to me to study music officially until my last year of high school when I had colleagues who were going on and studying music and doing auditions. And um, at that time, I was working uh, on my piano grade 10 RCM exam and didn't realize that that's actually kind of a big deal, that people uh, don't always go that far in piano. And that's what leads them into a university music program. And I think it's funny that I hadn't really considered it. And so I, I took the leap and auditioned on piano, but I also auditioned on trumpet because some yes. of my friends were also trumpet players. They were auditioning and I thought, well, if they're getting in on trumpet, I could probably get in on trumpet as well. <laughs> Didn't know anything about what I was doing. So uh, I was taken in as a, as a piano major, but I did trumpet all the way along. I studied trumpet uh, with the same teacher at the U, U of C and uh, kind of did an unofficial double major in okay. piano and in trumpet. I was a secondary band uh, education specialist and had always kind of thought that being a band teacher would be the greatest thing. And that was kind of my my hope Mm -hmm. and plans. And uh, I was so lucky to be introduced to conducting by my first mentor, Glenn Price. And Glenn was a terrific uh, first intro to conducting teacher. And I found out through colleagues in my class that there was this wonderful summer workshop that took place at the U of C. And uh, I was introduced to this program. Uh, The first guests that I met during my first week of this wind conducting program, um, David Maslanka was the very first guest. And I had to get up and conduct, you know, in front of David Maslanka. (laughs) And I was blown away at uh, at the information that I was being given, the people that I was surrounded by who were very serious about their studies, serious about going further in conducting. I met Mark Hopkins as one example, hey. Colleen Richardson, uh, Tanya Miller was in my very mm-hmm. first class. Yeah. So it, it was a really esteemed group of people who kind of introduced me to the idea of doing this seriously and what it meant to study conducting. Mm-hmm. And I was hooked from that first summer program. 
which is a diploma program that no longer exists, sadly. Uh, mm. A three-week, three-summer um, diploma in fine arts that was absolutely formative for me and so many others in doing conducting. And uh, over those three years of, of doing the program, and actually I ended up doing five years because I just oh. couldn't get enough. <laughs> I had the privilege of studying with some of the greatest in the field. So like I say, David Maslanka was a composer in residence. Alfred Reed was a composer in residence. Wow. I got to work with Frederick Fennell. I worked with uh, both of my uh, future teachers, Eugene Corporon and Mallory Thompson. Um, mm -hmm. Just an amazing group of people to be introduced to as a young woman entering this really daunting field of wind conducting that I, again, I feel like I just kind of went completely innocent, not knowing what I was walking into and came out absolutely fired up about this career. Yeah. So from there, I, like I say, I was able to work with uh, future teachers and uh, because I'd had that chance, they kind of knew who I was. And I made trips to Texas and trips mm -hmm. to Chicago to work at their workshops and to get to know those teachers better to see if it was a good match. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, went to Northwestern to work with Mallory, and then I went to North Texas uh, to do a doctorate with uh, Eugene Corcoran. So really, wow, really wonderful wow, wow. training. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's <clears throat> we've been lucky to have many guests on the podcast who have been through that diploma program. Um, and uh, every time, anytime anyone talks about it, I feel immensely jealous. <laughs> in a in, in the most positive way that it, this doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, I, I feel like everybody who wants to study conducting needs something like that. And since that time, mm. there have been, as you know, dozens and dozens of programs that exist in work uh, weekends or week long yeah. workshops. You can go and work with just about anybody. Um, but this was special because it was three weeks intense, and you worked and kind of ate and slept with all of these people. Don't take that too literally. <laughs> uh, we hung out <laughs> together, shall I say. <laughs> like camp. Save that for a, a different, yeah, it's totally like camp. That's a much better way to yeah. put it, Kate. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Translation. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but we got to know each other so well and went through the trenches mm -hmm. of this really intense nine in the morning till 10 at night conducting training. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just so amazing and like i say it, it really shaped who i wanted to become and the path that i would follow mm -hmm. and before um before you went and did your graduate work you 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 just spoke about the trenches but you spent some time in the trenches teaching in, in public school system oh, is I that did. correct <laughs> it is uh my path through teaching was really um kind of disjointed a little bit um i was as soon as I graduated in April, I took a job in May, a maternity leave mm -hmm. position, May and June of that year, where I was teaching kindergarten to grade nine music uh, to end oh, someone's wow. year. Oh, yeah. And, you know, from that point on, I was just busy, busy, busy. Uh, the next year, I had a full-time junior high school gig that I loved. I adored it. Um, but I was bumped out of the job because of not having a permanent oh. contract. And uh, then I was given this other job. Um, the last day of school at that junior high, I found another job at a high school, which I was really excited about and thrilled about. Until I went to the school, um, I kind of took the job on a handshake on that last day of school. There were no contracts at that point. They said, we'll see you in August. And I walked in in August and there were no instruments in the room. There oh, was no. no organization, no music library. And my job 
position had changed. So they had said, come in and do the music program and we'll find you something else to fill up your hours, right? So I'm thinking English class, uh, career and life management class, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was English and it was career and life management and it was science 14 <laughs> on top of an entire music program oh, wow. that they wanted me to establish. And I kind of had a bit of a nervous breakdown on that day and thought about it and thought about it. And I actually walked away from that job. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't feel that I was going to be successful. Uh, I didn't want to start something that uh, wouldn't leave a strong legacy. Yeah. And I kind of was trying to think, what do I want to do? Where do I want to spend my time? I didn't want to be grading papers and, and trying to figure out a science curriculum. Yeah. Um, most musicians have very little science training. <laughs> I was no exception. <laughs> and and so I, I walked away not knowing what I was going to do the next year uh, without a permanent job. But it turned out to be an exceptional year for me for growth. Uh, I took on substitute teaching and through that process, I got to see so many programs and so many different setups of how people did things mm -hmm. and different uh, socioeconomic programs and, and how things differ from place to place. Um, I took on a part-time job at a Jewish Orthodox Junior High School, which needed or wanted to start a band mm -hmm. program for their eight kids oh. and uh, turned that basically into a, a brass ensemble because Fun. that's what I knew best mm. and had the repertoire. I had it all in my hot little hands to <laughs> give to them and worked with them a couple times a week and turned them into these little hotshot brass players. <laughs> and in the meantime, was kind of thinking ahead to what am I going to do with my time? Do I stay and take another job? And I decided to apply to the band center to take mm -hmm. a little bit of time to be, you know, maybe more of a formed musician and kind of change my perspective on what do I want to do. I kind of wondered, should I do some performing? Should I take some more um, piano study? I ended up doing my ARCT exam that year because I had never finished it. Right. Um, and, and so you just kind of, you, you fill up that time to fill up your own uh, needs, I think. And being in mm -hmm. the classroom full time for me, just wasn't going to be in the cards. So the next year I did go to the BAMP Center to become a resident. Um, and every weekend I'd be back in Calgary um, teaching private lessons, teaching a brass ensemble that I was teaching at Mount Royal College. I mean, back and mm -hmm. forth as much as you can imagine. And when I wasn't there, I was supply teaching again in Calgary and making some money. And in the process, also applying for master's programs and trying to see wow. where could I go. And it was yeah. that year through BAMP that I felt I grew enough to feel ready to go. So I think the, the best advice I've been given is go and spend that time in the classroom. Form yourself a little bit. Um, get some idea of who you are in front of a group of kids and, and have to teach them. And so I feel I had so many opportunities to try different things with all of these different schools and different students. And by the time I got to Northwestern, I was ready for it. I think if I'd gone any right. sooner, I would not have been ready. Yeah. I wouldn't have known what yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> And even so, I think you never know what you don't know until you go and throw yourself out there. And mm. boy, oh boy, it was jumping into the deep end, going, <laughs> leaving, <laughs> you know, the, the comfort of Canada, the yeah. comfort of home where everybody knows you. And I think everybody mm. trusted me that if I'd wanted to do anything in Calgary, I, I would have been able to do it. Mm. But I needed to have that push. And so right. I packed up a U-Haul and drove myself to Chicago. And that's kind of where the journey of being the wind band conductor began. Wow. Yeah. You know, I think that's a, a, 
hearing hearing what you did before you even like thought about going to Chicago is something we all need to consider. Especially, I mean, part of my path is just being so eager <laughs> to want to go from bachelor's mm-hmm. degree to graduate work to to well, to doctorate work, and you know, having a mentor that said mm, maybe you should. I don't know, not do that. So that was Live good. Thank you, Jillian. Um, <laughs> um, well, and uh, it's it's about growing up, right? It's, yeah. it's you need some time to to figure a little bit of life out. Um, I, I have a lot of students now who are chomping at the bit to go on, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I I try to gently say the same thing to them. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I one of my colleagues here, Bill Street, who's our chair, um, he gives me the advice to say. Do you think that these students are can learn something? You know, if they want to do conducting with you, can you teach them something? Can mm-hmm. they still become formed uh, as better musicians through carrying on? So I have had a few students come through straight from an undergrad into a master's program. Yeah. And it kind of it's shifted my perspective on that, that yes, the waiting is always smart. And I've also had those people come back who've been out teaching, you know, a decade or more who've come in to do graduate work. And... Mm-hmm. I think there are pluses and minuses on both sides of the the table there that when you're in the mode of school, and especially these days with the cost of education rising and rising, um, I feel like a lot of students just want to carry on while they're in that mode of school. And if they're driven, if they're motivated, I I encourage them to say, okay, Mm -hmm. if you're ready to work that hard as a grad student, we'll work you. We'll work you hard. Yeah, that's awesome perspective. And something that stuck out for me too in what you were just saying is that that job that you ultimately turned down, I think there's sort of a lesson in there as well that, you know, a lot of um, pre-service teachers and early career teachers maybe feel the pressure to just take any job that's given to them. I think it's awesome that you were able to make a decision based on knowing that that position didn't quite feel right for you at that time and, you know, trusting that something else would come along, you would make something else happen that was close, more closely aligned with what you were looking for and what you wanted to spend your time and energy doing. So I think that that's just a really um, awesome takeaway from your story as well. Yeah, it's, I feel like what we need to train students in these days is uh, imagine anything that. You know, they come in and you think you want to be a band teacher and you have this idea of what that looks like. And most of them find out very quickly that it's not what they had. It's not the same, that things have changed. Uh, The expectations of your time are different. Um, I have so many students who are teaching music and something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's very rare to have a full-time music position. And and a lot of them feel what I felt, which is I I just want to keep being a musician. I, I don't want to you know, be in the drudgery. It sounds terrible because a lot of people love it. I always say, if you love math and you love grading math and all of that, you should do that. I think that's wonderful. (laughs) Uh, But that I went into music teaching to make music, to be a musician, to be active with students, to further myself all the time. And I just knew that trying to, you know, start up a program while simultaneously trying to teach myself how to do that other side of teaching was just a, a really bad idea, yeah. mm-hmm. um, compounded by the fact that the the science uh, department head was a brand new teacher who also came in and was 
completely frazzled by what they had found in their labs right. and said, I'm not right. going to have time to teach you how yeah. to do this. You're going to be on your yeah. own. And I thought, that's a sign. Yeah. <laughs> that's a sign. <laughs> for right. sure. <laughs> Run for the hills. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I think, thinking back on it, I, I'm, I'm very proud of myself for what you're talking about, yeah. Kate, to, to actually make a decision like that. Because you're right. I think we feel that pressure to have a job, to be a grown up and, mm -hmm. you know, suck it up, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. You just take what's given to you without sometimes the regard for what's best for yeah. me. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, that was not going to be best for mm -hmm. me. I knew that. Yeah, that's awesome. So as you mentioned uh, earlier, you did your graduate work with two of the best, Mallory Thompson and Eugene Corporon. So we were wondering if you could just expand a little bit on, um, you know, what drew you to these two phenomenal teachers and maybe what some of the biggest lessons that they taught you were. Um, I feel like I was drawn very much to Mallory Thompson as a really strong female in our field as a mentor. Mm -hmm. And uh, the two places I was accepted for a master's program uh, were with Mallory, but also with Paula Holcomb hmm. at Fredonia. And Paula is a Northwestern grad, and oh, okay. she knew I was applying at Northwestern. Right. So to have applied with these two incredible females who had this legacy of the Northwestern name, Northwestern is where I had wanted to go from, I think, the first day I met Dr. Thompson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, I, I didn't want to only pigeonhole. You never know what's going to happen in life. So I, I did apply to uh, several places. And Paula was so supportive and so encouraging. She she'd accepted me to her program, um, I'd say, three to four weeks before I heard from Northwestern. Okay. And she she understood and she knew what I was waiting for. Mm -hmm. And the day that I had to call her was the hardest phone call <laughs> I had ever made to say, I'm going to be going to Northwestern. I thank you for the offer and for mm -hmm. supporting me. Um, and I had to leave that on an answering machine, oh. which was awful. <laughs> and she called me back on my answering machine and she sang me the Northwestern fight song. Oh. You know, <laughs> she was so happy for me. Yeah. She knew and understood. And I think that's, she's remained a mentor to me despite not being her direct student. She knew um, yeah. when you know what you want, you should go after it. And if you get into Northwestern, you go to Northwestern. Mm -hmm. And so I went and, and put myself uh, under the, what I think, the tutelage of one of the best conducting pedagogues in the world. Mallory has uh, one of the best approaches to the physical motion of conducting that mm -hmm. I've ever gotten from any other teacher. I, I think she understands it uh, better than most people that I've worked with. She instills the excellence in her students to think about every motion, every sound, that it always has a musical um, impetus, that there's always um, that kind of uh, preparation behind what you're doing. At every step, you need to have the music as the number one, and she won't take anything less than your best. And mm -hmm. uh, it was a whipping. She <laughs> is hard. She tells it like it is. Yeah. There are tears. Um, and there is, you know... Um, the, the moments where you know that you're getting it at last mm -hmm. and she'll mm -hmm. let you know, here we are, look at the progress and see what you've done. And I think in a, a graduate program, it's easy to kind of uh, feel like <laughs> you're never getting it right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it kind of shows you uh, everything you never knew you didn't know 
uh, highlights every weakness you've ever had. Uh, the psychology of conducting, uh, that is a whole other uh, hour-long discussion. <laughs> and um, something that drew me to Dr. Thompson when she'd come to, through Calgary is that she talked about how um, her students, this was kind of a, a sticky point with a lot of people, that her students would go to therapy, that mm -hmm. they would talk to um, a counselor or a psychologist to talk about this. She says, because you know what, I'm not your mother. You need someone. You you need to talk through some of the things that you're going to go yeah. through. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was some of the best advice that I can ever remember getting. And at that point in time, I think there was still a lot of taboo about people going to see someone for yeah. mental health support. And uh, 20 years later, I think we're in a totally different place. Mm -hmm. And she was kind of ahead of her time to know that this is something you, you need to, you know, take care of yourself. And uh, I, I think it's some of the best advice. She obviously, it's from her own experience as well, that what we do mm -hmm. is not easy, that we put our hearts and our minds and everything we've got on a podium. And if you've got stuff, whatever that stuff happens to be, that will come through and it will affect you. And I really appreciated that approach of deal with your stuff, yeah. you know, and, and let's not have to fight that on the podium. The podium is about the music and you can feel things on the podium. Sure. Uh, but it, it can't inhibit you. So let's mm -hmm. figure that out. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful. And it was two years where it was all about me for the first time in my life where I lived by myself, well, not by myself, I had roommates, but when you're self-sufficient in another city, yeah. it's a whole different feeling. And awesome. uh, I grew up, like I said, I think it's a lot just has to do with growing up and, and learning who you are and who you want to be. So that was my Mallory Thompson experience where I had uh, a cohort of four of us. Rob Taylor was one of them. Mm -hmm. I know uh, he's been on the podcast and he's remained one of my closest colleagues and friends. Um, the group of four of us were a common studio for two years, so we became this little tight family, mm -hmm. and it was wonderful, amazing, um, nurturing, all of those things. And so when we dispersed and I went off to Texas, I did not have a family. Um, I went for uh, my time with Professor Corcoran because I knew um, he had lots and lots to offer on the advice of uh, one of my profs at Northwestern, Ryan Nelson, who was a recent grad. I loved how Ryan worked. I loved how he rehearsed. He was very direct. He had very uh, absolutely pointed things to say to an ensemble. And I thought, that's that's a corporate. I can tell. <laughs> I feel the difference in these approaches. And I need that side too, right? Yeah. I need to go and I need to learn about how to hear. I knew that corporate did all of these uh, recordings. Ryan talked a lot about that. And it was uh, a draw to go somewhere where I, I felt I would get a different experience. And it was a totally different experience, a lot more hands off, I would say I was trusted with a lot of responsibility. I was teaching uh, undergraduate conducting at North Texas. Mm -hmm. um, I was rehearsing um, every one of their bands at some point in time with very little intervention, you know, that um, right. you're given that autonomy to stand in front of a group and rehearse them and make them better. And I think that was really helpful as well. But I would say watching Mr. Corcoran rehearse his wind symphony was the education that I needed to watch him rehearse mm -hmm. with such accuracy and precision in what he wanted to hear with that mind of if this was a recording session, 
How would we make that clear? Mm -hmm. How do we make the music fit what it needs to sound like for the composer? So again, it was very music focused with a much more technical approach to here's the how. Here's how we change all the articulation in this passage to make it sound like what the composer has written, because we know it's not sounding like that based on what they actually wrote. Those were wonderful <laughs> tricks to learn that uh, uh, let's have the whole horn section stand up and shift five feet to the right, get closer to a microphone or get closer <laughs> to the audience or, you know, the, the cowbells coming right to the front of the ensemble or whatever it needed to be, right? That it was serving the music. And I love that, that uh, being um, exposed to those kinds of techniques, I'd never considered all of the different ways that you can mess with an ensemble. And here are the changes that you need to make and to hear those changes in person. That's the education that I was given from Mr. Corporon. So, like you say, I feel like I've been so blessed. Two of the very best in the business. Um, I feel like a very formed child from those two teachers. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's so it's so interesting to hear you talk about, you know, well, I know we've said it several times already, but two of the best, but also like how they differ. You know, there's there's so many common probably traits of, of both of them, but uh, it's it's really interesting to hear what, what you've learned from both. Earlier on, we talked about, right at the beginning, actually, how you're a hometown girl. You're from Alberta. So it must be the coolest thing to be back in Alberta. I know you've been there for years. <laughs> like, it's not like it happened last week or anything. But, I know. Um, <laughs> I know. I started counting. It's, I'm in year 15. Wow. Oh, And that wow. just, it kind of, yeah, I know. I, I don't look at it all, right? I'm <laughs> such a fresh-faced no. young thing. Yeah, right. Just keep flattering me. I yeah. need. Oh, um, I am an expert. So, <laughs> yeah, that's how I got through no, school. I think didn't we all? <laughs> um, I I always kind of imagined that I might have a journey of going to who knows where. My joke was I'm going to go to Arkansas. I had this feeling that I was going to end up in Arkansas for some reason. It just that's a yeah. name that came up to me that I thought was kind of an inevitability. Uh, <laughs> And at the moment that I was ready to go out and, and get jobs, there were two Canadian jobs. Um, and I couldn't believe my luck about that. And, uh, I kind of figured this is going to happen. So I, mm -hmm. um, auditioned, interviewed at Western, mm -hmm. where okay. Colleen Richardson is now. Yeah. Um, and felt like, that was a destiny in a way. I thought this is what's supposed to happen. I'm supposed to go on the other side of Canada to learn more about Canada, um, mm -hmm. to figure out how I can influence um, a, a different community that I know nothing about and felt really strongly about it. And then the, the next week I interviewed in Edmonton, Alberta with no idea of what I was walking into. Um, having been a Calgary girl, I mostly ignored Edmonton, to be honest, <laughs> and I knew very little about the U of A. Yeah. And I I came away from my interview here in Alberta, in Edmonton, feeling like I had found a family. Mm -hmm. And I'd never had that experience where it just was a good fit and an unexpected fit. And so then I had that perplexing feeling of, okay, well, what happens if I get offered Western or what happens, you know, I, I don't want to go through this, the whole bargaining thought. I was <laughs> terrified to go through it. I didn't know if I was strong <laughs> enough to have to figure it out. And it kind of figured itself out, you know, uh, Colleen was offered the job at Western, which is as it should be. And I was offered this job in Alberta, which is exactly as it should be. Nice. And mm -hmm. she and I will both say to each other, it was exactly how it was supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and we've been such good colleagues for so long. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we've just supported each other through all of this, going through grad school simultaneously. She was in Calgary doing her master's degree as I was doing an education degree. Oh, okay. So I know her so well. And yeah, so being able to come home um, and, and to have some influence, my family is still in Calgary, so it's nice mm -hmm. to be able to go there. But um, the community in Edmonton, I cannot stress enough what an amazing arts community this is that I had no idea about. Um, mm -hmm. I think. A lot of people know about the Fringe Festival here as a very famous um, theater um, d yeah. destination and venue. Um, but the music here is unbelievable. Uh, the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra is absolutely stunning. They play yeah. repertoire that is out of this world. I've been introduced to conductors I wouldn't have ever known, repertoire I wouldn't have ever known, and amazing players, just incredible players in what I have to say is I think one of the best concert halls in the world. Um, if you've never come to this hall, the Windspear Concert Hall, it's where we get to perform several times a year. And it it's incredible. One of the greatest concert halls, honestly. And uh, so the other part of this is that there is a huge amateur music scene here, that mm -hmm. there are community bands all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, people keep playing in band. They keep going, um, they leave high school and they find somewhere to go. It's inspiring to see what a great band community this is and yeah. to walk in and, and to be um, in my own mind. I, I kind of got the, the queen bee position, right? <laughs> that I, I feel like I, I won the lottery getting this yeah. job and to come in and to establish something um, somewhat new. I was following someone who had been here for 25 years oh, wow, and yeah. to be, um, Young and female, first of all, as a, a different kind of a, a mentor for people mm -hmm. and to immerse in this community with new ideas and new repertoire and new connections. Uh, it was exciting. And mm -hmm. uh, I feel every day how how grateful I am that this uh, this is the turn that I was able to take. Yeah, no, that's that's so cool. I had no idea about the uh, the path to to uh, U of A and, and how that worked out. And I, I was wondering um, if you could, you know, tell us a little bit about the program, about your position, and also just some, some of the the cool stuff that you've been able to do. I know I know you've been able to take the the band to CBDNA with with Jens and and all that. So could you uh, could you enlighten us? Yeah, I like I said, being from Calgary, I knew nothing about the the program here, and mm -hmm. so not knowing, I kind of came in and said, "Here's all the things I want to do. We're going <laughs> to travel. We are going to." Uh, go out and, you know, make recordings. We're going to do all of these things. Uh, highest <laughs> intentions from the, the get-go. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to take the group to a regional CBDNA because that's an experience I had as an undergraduate student in Calgary. Mm -hmm. And I remember how that felt to go, um, first of all, to the regional, but then to the, the national CBDNA and, and how important that was. Um, I had been to the Midwest Clinic for gosh, probably a decade of Midwest before I got to, to U of A. And so I had this perspective on wind band that I think a lot of people didn't have. And mm -hmm. I, I didn't think there was anything we couldn't do. So right. uh, a, a lesson I learned from Dr. Thompson many years ago is go and make mistakes. Go and do repertoire you don't think they're going to be able to do. you got to give them a chance. Raise mm -hmm. that bar to where you think you want them to rise to. Realistically, you know, we didn't um, 
jump in and do some of the craziest things. But in my first year, um, it was repertoire that people had never heard of, right. things that people, uh, composers that had never been performed in Edmonton, and just trying to give my students that experience that I had had and trying to find the newest and the greatest repertoire I had at, when I got here at a, kind of a boom time in Alberta. We'll discuss how Alberta has changed, but um, <laughs> I had a, kind of an unlimited budget and Ooh. I used it. I, I rented music. I purchased music. I've expanded the library almost double since I got here and feeling like these students deserve to know what else is out there. And mm -hmm. I had people who could play, but they didn't really know they could play. You know, they, they really had never been pushed to find out what they were capable of. And so that right. very first concert um, terrified them. It was <laughs> probably way too hard and probably was a mistake. But at the same time, these students rose to things that they never knew that they could actually rise to. Yeah. And that's kind of been my mantra going through is what's what's the next biggest thing that we can do? Yeah. Where do we need to go? Where do we need to um, expand in our repertoire? And so being able to give a lot of Alberta premieres, even some Canadian premieres of, of some big composers. You know, we, we did Stephen Bryant's Ecstatic Waters. I think we were the first in Canada. Maybe right. Rob beat me. I don't know. But <laughs> at least the first in Alberta. I love to be first. I, I can't yeah. say for sure. I don't remember now. But Oh, you trumpet um, player, you. I know. It, it's a very ego <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of deny that sometimes because I'm hybrid. I'm a pianist and a trumpet player. Right, so, right, right. You know, I'm not fully egotistical. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Best of both worlds. I try to bring the kinder, gentler pianist side sometimes. There you go. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, saying to the ensemble, you know, listen to this piece. So we would listen to um, Mazlanka Symphony Number no. 7 was the first uh, big Mazlanka piece we did here. And we had done it oh, at wow. North Texas, so I, I knew it really, really well. I had corresponded with David about the piece, um, a very special piece for me because I had had that experience. And so to be able to share that, to say, I've spoken to David Mazlanka about this piece, yeah. and um, here's his email to you as we're performing it sending him my rehearsal recording and getting feedback from mm -hmm. him. They had never had an experience like that. Mm. Um, we did an amazing premiere of John Corleano's Symphony No. 3, The Circus Maximus. We were the I Canadian hope, yeah. premiere of that piece. Um, and we brought him to Edmonton. And I've never been more terrified to work on anything <laughs> in my life, having John Corleano, yeah. you know, right on your shoulder. Yeah. And it didn't go well at first. Our first rehearsal, we had we needed to bring in extra players, so we combined with the uh, new Edmonton Wind Symphonia, who are now the Edmonton Winds, and okay. we kind of split up the piece so that we weren't all trying to learn the whole thing, and that we would have for the big mass moments, we'd have this critical mass of people on stage to really realize what John wanted. So he mm -hmm. heard the very first combined rehearsal. I had been rehearsing both groups separately, but the very first rehearsal, and you can imagine if you know the piece at all, it's just, it's chaos yeah. at the best of times, but to try to organize the chaos. And it wasn't the chaos parts that were the trouble. It was the beautiful prayer movement that was so still and so important to be in tune and so important to shape. And that was the most daunting thing. And that, again, there's a lesson uh, here I thought all of the queuing and all the people all over the hall, that was going to be the hard part of this piece. But no, the prayer was by far the most challenging and yeah. absolutely kicked my butt when he forced <laughs> us to go back, go back, go back. Yeah. 
And I'll never forget that feeling. And I think at that moment he was thinking, what have I done? This is a horrible idea. But the next day we were able to go to this wonderful concert hall I talked about before. And as soon as he saw the hall and he heard us in the hall, he said, everything's going to be fine. This will work. This will work. And I took that deep breath and went, oh, thank God, this is going to work. I'm going to make him happy. Magic is a nice space. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when you have the venue, it's amazing how much that can affect uh, everything that you put together. So that I'm, that's probably one of my most proud accomplishments here is putting on that mm-hmm. piece it's probably the biggest selling concert we've had for our department in 15 years oh, okay. we filled the entire main floor because you wow. had to have people performing in the balconies we had yeah. everybody right, into yeah. that main floor and it was overflowing there were people in the aisles you know that's so amazing just a, a great experience to work on something like that and that's the thing these kids can do anything I throw at them we do it if I think I can do it, I think they can do it. You know, I, I was very right. scared of the the Schwantner and the mountains rising nowhere. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. piece that's been on my list to do for, you know, ever since I was an undergrad looking at it. And two years ago, I knew I had the percussion section to do it. I had uh, enough saxophones to double all the double reeds to do it. <laughs> and we jumped in and I was, you know, honest with the students to say this piece is hard, hard yeah. for me, hard for us hard in general that this conceptually is a a really big challenge and i want you to acknowledge the work that we're going to do acknowledge the work that i'm doing to even be in front of you but let's do it It, it's time it's a wonderful piece of music and i think the work is going to pay off in dividends and just another example of yes it was a a concert they won't forget and an experience that i won't forget teaching it and now I'm itching to go back to it and teach it again because I think I can do it better. Yeah. I've yeah. learned, I've yeah. grown, and I think that's part of it too is I have to keep growing as much yeah, as possible. Sure. Yeah, well, that's amazing. And and in the uh, in getting ready for this this chat, you know, just doing the general Google thing, it was amazing to see how many um, how many commissions or consortiums your name with U of A was was connected with, oh. um, and it, it's and you know often. Only, the only Canadian band, yeah. so it, I, I thank you for for doing that and, and bringing this music to uh, to Canada and and so your students can experience it and ultimately so we can also experience it. Sure, yeah, and and trying to encourage young composers. I mean, so I feel like I spent the first half of my career trying to uh, live up to everything I'd been taught that I could do mm. um, a Corleano piece, for example. I've worked on Mislanka pieces, Colgrass pieces, things like that. What I'm realizing is this turn to uh, equity, diversity, inclusion in the last couple of years, um, it's changed my perspective on who we need to highlight and who we need to find. And Kate, you've inspired me so much as one of those people to highlight. And we've done several of your pieces here now and trying to figure out it's, it's about new discoveries and new voices. And I, I'm looking forward to the chance to find those gems of pieces. You know, there, there's mm-hmm. such a wealth of, of pieces to choose from out there. And when you find something that really speaks to you, that speaks of someone that is fresh, um, that's where I'm excited to go next, is to try to explore yeah. and, and to find new things that do different things with an ensemble. So I, I feel like we're, I have this, this concept in my mind that the pandemic has kind of pushed forward a little bit, that 
band music and orchestral music, even choir music, just large ensemble music in general is going to shift a lot. And it has shifted this year. This has been the Mm -hmm. moment that I, in some ways, had a premonition about that it's not going to be about having, you know, five trumpets, four flutes, four saxophones. It's going to be about having musicians Mm -hmm. so that the hybrid idea of musicians coming together is going to be a much bigger thing. And lo and behold, here we are pushed into it. And I've had a year with no low brass in my band. They've all been online, so I haven't had a low brass sound. So what do you do with an ensemble when you don't have that? Well, we had to improvise. We had to figure out what it's going to be. We had to look at some of these um, flex instrumentation pieces that had appeared this year And to consider, how do we make this sound? How do you create a balanced ensemble sound with five trumpets and nobody else in the brass section, you know, against (laughs) all of these woodwinds? And it it just shifts your whole concept of what it could be, that there are so many ways that we can imagine music. So I, I feel like you know, we've already seen kind of a, the, the death of the, the orchestras sort of happening. I don't think it's ever going to die completely. But that there's mm-hmm. there needs to be a shift in how we approach what's going on in that setting. How I, as a yeah. wind ensemble conductor at a university, how I approach repertoire, how I approach programming, um, with some of these ideas in mind. Um, some years I have a full complement of double reed players. Some years I do not. Um, yeah. I've had horn players, or sorry, I've had saxophone players becoming horn players in my band mm-hmm. in the past because we didn't have horns. Um, mm-hmm. saxophones becoming it's always saxophones by the way U of A is a massive <laughs> saxophone school yeah. saxophones Seems can be wisely. any instrument you want them yeah. to be okay, they've covered just the millions of the of the wind band <laughs> and and I have such wonderful saxophone players they're just virtuosic at every turn so they'll do anything and they're they're willing to do anything and try anything so um, yeah but just knowing that we can do those things and that bands all over the world are doing this already that most bands don't have the perfect instrumentation and perfect mm-hmm. balance and the perfect sound. And so how do we, um, how do we flex to figure this out? That feeling of pivot, how are we going to yeah. adjust to this new situation? So here we are, like I say, in this pandemic time, it's happened. It's been forced upon us. And I think we still have yet to see what that's going to mean as we turn the corner. How will this affect what music programs look like? Um, in yeah. some cases here in Alberta, it's sad that uh, music wasn't allowed to be done. Wind instruments weren't allowed in a lot of schools this year. Some places they mm-hmm. were, but some they weren't. Um, a whole lot of percussion ensembles have cropped up all over <laughs> Alberta schools, which, again, <laughs> what a great pivot. What yeah. a great opportunity to do something different. Um, but how do we move forward and out of this? That Do we have to return to something in the traditional sense of a concert band? Or are we ready to try... Um, this idea of here's who we have, here's what I have, here's the money I have. How do we mm-hmm. then move forward to make meaningful music? And I think the composers that can follow that line and who can be creative and be uh, dynamic and exciting about those opportunities, I think are going to be the ones who survive, um, who thrive, and who we need to try and champion as much as we can. Yeah. So I feel like that's that's my next challenge moving forward is how do I allow for those voices to emerge and to um, to create the kind of music that uh, we can move forward with? Well, and I have to 
you know, just thank you for um, being such a huge supporter and advocate of my own music. And as you've mentioned, the music of so many other living composers and fresh voices. It's, you know, it's a two-way street. We really, composers like myself, we depend on people like you uh, who are wanting to bring new music forward. Um, so Absolutely. super appreciate Keep that. Writing. <laughs> <Yeah>. Keep writing. Keep <laughs> writing. I will. I will. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned uh, community bands being... Um, you know, a pretty big thing in Alberta. And so we wanted to just quickly ask you about your position with the St. Albert Community Band and maybe how your role as a community band conductor differs from what you do um, at the U of A. Sure. Um, I fell in love with the St. Albert Community Band doing a workshop with them. They do a band camp uh, outside of Edmonton every year, and they invited me to be a guest conductor one year. And uh, mm -hmm. this band is... Again, I, I keep using the word family. Everywhere I go, things are a family. And uh, yeah. maybe that's just a, a part of what I experience in music is that everything we do creates this familial feeling. But that band camp just taught me so much about the kind of people that they were, that they were open to trying things and that they would um, take on any of the, the weird and different ideas that I had with such enthusiasm and such excitement and also with... Um, opinions about this works or well that sucked we're not really good at that or you know like they're just so honest and it just made yeah. they made me laugh they made me feel good about making music with people who were there by choice to make music yeah. and so they mm -hmm. they were looking for a conductor a couple of years later and I thought this would be a really good fit I enjoyed working with them I feel like I could do something with this group of people and was uh lucky to be chosen as their music director. And in that time, like I say, we've, we've grown, we've had growing pains where I have pushed them to, again to things that they never thought they could do. Um, they kind of fashioned themselves as a, a grade three, four band. And every once in a while we'll do something hard, right? And I was like, yeah, forget <laughs> that. Coming in and we're doing, you know, whole suites, which they had never really done intently. And I'm like, you guys need to know how to play this. This is important to, to be able to play this and to approach this music and to um, have a sense of style. And one of the clarinet players um, who has been with the band for, this will be year 53, except that we've lost this year. Oh, 52, yeah. sorry. Uh, we were supposed to have our big 50th anniversary last year. Um, and so we'll be going technically into year 52 this fall if everything goes according to plan. But uh, one of the clarinet players was the president of the band from its inception. Um, and he came to me and said, you know, previous conductors have made me a better clarinet player. But Angela, you've made me a better musician. And I take that as the Aww. highest compliment that anybody could ever give. Because yeah, that was beautiful. my mandate is we're going to learn music. We're going to play music. And I want you all to know music that is not just transcriptions, which is, you know, a lot of community bands. We play things for yeah. um, farmers markets or community events where you want to, you know, the pop stuff goes over very, very well with the audience. And, and we're good at doing that. Mm -hmm. But they had never gone full bore into a music festival. And. Right. you know, been kind of ripped apart first by me, but then by adjudicators <laughs> beyond that Yeah, and yeah. and to learn and grow. <laughs> and um, I, I learned a lot about an adult community band going on tour with them 
This is a, a band that makes sure they have a licensed bus when they travel. <laughs> um, <laughs> totally different experience as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've bonded with them in what feels like a really profound way that I don't know how I can ever not be their conductor. I feel like at some point I'll have to let them go, that they, they'll need somebody new. But I don't see that happening anytime soon. <laughs> I just yeah. love them too much. Mm-hmm. And and they make <laughs> me think about music differently. So um, I'm, I'm a teacher with them. I feel like I need to kind of go back and, and give them a little bit more of the um, the music fundamentals that many of them just have missed over the years or just not known. So the biggest joke is every time I bring out the circle of fourths or circle of fifths, they hate me for the circle of fourths and the circle of fifths. They despise going around that and trying to play every scale. But yeah. now they can play every scale, you know, yeah. and yeah. and next year we might even go into minor scales. Oh my gosh, that would be, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the sound. So, um, yeah. I, and I think that contribution to community as well, that I, I could be just here in my little, um, ivory tower at the university and not worry about anything else. I, I have the best of all possible worlds with my ensemble here and I can do my own thing and have a great time, but I want to be out in the community. I want to have that connection to a wider group of, of musicians in the, in the province. And, uh, like I said, the community mm-hmm. band connection throughout Edmonton and throughout Alberta is so strong. Um, someone was working on a database of all of the community bands and we're well into the hundreds of community bands in Alberta. I mean, it, it's wow. pretty crazy thinking about a population that's not really that high for how many bands there are. Remarkable. No, that's so, that's funny. I, I connect with so much of what you're saying about working with community bands. My, my first, my first like job outside of my master's was with the Milton concert band. Mm -hmm. And I was, I don't know, maybe 25. (laughs) And, you know, you just get out of university and you're like, oh, we're going to do Holst. We're going to do all this real band rep. And um, as you mentioned, all the pop stuff and, you know, whatever community events you're playing at kind of prevailed. But I remember I brought, it wasn't even anything like crazy hard. It was uh, This Cruel Moon, Mm -hmm. the John Mackey. (laughs) But they had not been used to the crunches and how it resolved (laughs) and all this. And yeah, where I'm packing because, you know, I'm moving soon. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found this I don't know, it's like four page review <laughs> that they had given me. And it's hilarious to read now how they did not like <laughs> this rep. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm so sorry. And Mark Hopkins and I have talked about that as well. Sometimes it was like, maybe we're pushing the envelope a little bit too much. Hearing you get a review from them. I had one of my band members gave me this sheet of paper a few years ago. Uh, we did a tour to Austria, which was amazing, wonderful. So many good things came out of that tour. But we brought home a bunch of repertoire and uh, Austrian repertoire because mm-hmm. I thought we we need to do some of this. This sounds great. We heard so many polka bands and things, and uh, so I, I bought several polkas because I for uh, farmers <laughs> markets and things that's perfect music for us, right? <laughs> yeah. But this one piece, this crazy polka, has I can't even remember how many repeats in it, and. Uh, DS I'll say no to here and then yeah, yeah, over yeah. here you do a DC but then what do you do with the sign here and all of this yeah. and uh, I think everybody's playing like almost all the time it's on your face most of the piece and so this band member went through and he said for my part alone I had to play x number of notes he counted the notes oh, with wow. repeats and everything and he said this many dynamic changes this many articulation changes this many um, roadmap changes right all of those things and he said 
to consider what the single musician has to think about to get through a piece from the beginning to the end. And he says, and then you have to think about mm-hmm. all of our parts. And I'm like, you're right. Like, I work really hard. And he said, it, it's pretty, when you think about what we do as musicians, it's profound yeah. how much we yeah. have to be accountable to what we're doing. And and a piece like that really highlighted how brainy it is to keep track of music and then to actually feel something about the music while you're doing it and to sound good while you're doing all of that, too. I mean, it, it's it is miraculous what we do. And I, I try to keep that in perspective a lot, too, that yeah. when it sounds yeah. good, that's really evidence of hard work from so many perspectives. So mm-hmm. good to remember. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And also just to think about what you said about, you know, them wanting to be there. And and I've said it a thousand times, but some of the most passionate musicians I've ever met in my life have been community band musicians. And and I've learned so much about that passion and been able to bring it into my own uh, musicianship and my own teaching and and all that stuff. So it's it's really nice to hear from you as well. And uh, we talked about this uh, kind of, but maybe maybe we can dive in a little bit deeper um, since you are the first guest from Alberta and we just keep saying that and putting so much pressure on you. But <laughs> uh, we are a little bit uh, curious to hear about band and music education in Alberta and, and maybe even some of the challenges uh, your province is facing in terms of uh, music and arts education. Yeah, I, I imagine we're not that different from a lot of places that the first thing to cut tends to be music, right? That we are an expensive thing mm-hmm. to do. And in an education setting, um, sometimes it's really, really valued and understood that it costs money. We, we're necessarily an expensive art form. Um, but once you have things in place and established, it's not so hard to maintain music. You just need someone like we were just talking about, someone with the drive and the passion for doing it. Then it's not hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's sometimes lost when a principal or a superintendent comes down and all they see are the dollar bills that go into what we do rather than the expertise that goes into what we do that um, every band teacher has to be able to teach all of these instruments and we have to have really good instruments to be able to make players play well and so when things are well invested in things go really 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 well and when they're not it's easy to let it go And so I think the challenge right now in Alberta is a lot of that is happening. And I'm really hopeful that the pandemic doesn't kill more of what's already um, been in the process of dying, unfortunately. Like I said, a lot of my students will be teaching music and something else that takes a lot of time. It takes time to be a social studies teacher on top of being a music teacher or the drama teacher as well as the music teacher. And I, I wish we could go back to that idea of specialists and for people to recognize how important it is to have the strongest musician teaching students and how valuable that is. We all know this and it's propaganda in a way that we say the music students are always the smartest students in the school. And we say it because it's true that musicians do have this higher ability of thinking that makes them better at everything else that they do. And we shouldn't ignore that. We shouldn't only use that as our um, raison d'etre, that we should exist so that we make everything else better. We should exist because music is a language unto itself and is important as an art form unto itself, and that we should value music as a society. And Anytime I get the chance to go to Europe and I I remember and I'm reminded how much music is invested in every aspect of their lives in Europe, then it wouldn't even be a question to not have music Mm -hmm. everywhere you go. 
versus coming to Canada and saying, oh, well, we need to uh, have more engineers and more scientists and more bankers. I don't know um, yeah. <laughs> that it's all about the dollar. So I, I feel like we still have really wonderful programs in Alberta who are fighting mm -hmm. constantly to survive and the fittest will continue to survive. Um, there's a, a very senior teacher in Edmonton. I won't name names who famously will say I've survived four principals who've tried to cut my program <laughs> and they're gone <laughs> and I'm still here. Right. Yeah. And right. that says so much to that dedication that a music teacher who believes in what they do will fight to the death to, to save whatever program they have. They will come in at lunch hours to run a band program. They will come at seven in the morning. You know, I'm sure both of you were 7 a.m. rehearsers yep. at some point in time or, you know, mm -hmm. busy with music until 10 o'clock at night with rehearsals outside totally. of school. Yeah. And that's what musicians do, much like athletics. You know, and athletics gets yep. such notoriety and, and support for such a thing. And we work equally as hard, if not harder in some cases. And for students to um, excel and have the dedication and drive to come to rehearsals, but also to practice on their own, all of these things, yeah. these mm -hmm. should be valued, um, in my opinion, more strongly than they are. So I think it, it's not going to yeah. just simply go away, unfortunately. Um, but I, I feel there are enough strong advocates here and enough of a tradition in history that Alberta has always had really strong music programs. Uh, like I said, Edmonton's a very music community-driven place to be. And I think if music were to start disappearing, there would be an uproar that there is enough yeah. support yeah. from parents and community members who, who recognize that loss would be too much. It, it's just yeah. not acceptable. So I, I'm confident that the fight is still in us. It may have yep. to look a little bit different um, depending on, you know, I think pandemic has taught us so much about uh, how much we value being together. Yeah. And as long as people will make space, you know, I was asking all year, could someone find me a gym so that I can rehearse everybody all together? <laughs> could, could I just yeah. have no one else is using those spaces? Yeah. Um, but it wasn't even through my own department necessarily understood enough that why we need that space is so that we can be together, that the goal is playing music together. And I think that's not going to go away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. um, every year, except this last year, I've run an honor band program. This was established at the U of A before I came as a recruitment tool. And it's a genius recruitment tool that we host our own honor band. Obviously, there are provincial honor bands and the, the U.S. is famous for all state bands and all of that. Uh, but yeah. bringing students to our campus and showing them what a music school is like and introducing them to students and to our faculty, having them play in our concert hall, getting the chance to take them downtown to the big concert hall and perform. Um, we've quadrupled the size of the program. When I got here, there was about 60 kids total. And at our last count, we had 251 people in our nice. last round of honor bands. Oh, so wow. we actually have two, we have to split them, but they're still mega bands, <laughs> right? A 110 and 130 people bands. <laughs> it, it's kind of nuts. And so this yeah. year, not having that, what a loss, what a loss yeah. to the recruitment, mm -hmm. what a loss to the path into music. Um, those who want it will still come. We actually had a record number of auditionees for the undergraduate program this year, which blew my mind. I was so grateful that people still are going to come. Um, I'm not convinced mm -hmm. that's going to last for the next five years. There will be 
definite attrition from all of this that we're going through. So that will also mm-hmm. affect, I think, all programs yeah. everywhere. But I want to stay optimistic and believe that there's enough of a drive here in this community that music is important and valued. And as long as we're not completely dismantled due to a silly budget from a provincial government, then I think we can prevail. And that there's enough mm-hmm. of the the want for such a thing here. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. And one thing that stands out to me is just you mentioned that the fight is is still there. You know, it's in all of you and that you'll fight to the death to keep your program alive and things like that. And part of me feels like that's so inspiring, but I can't help but wonder if if you were able to use some of that energy that you normally have to spend fighting to just exist to actually flourish and thrive and do new things, if you were able to, you know, if you didn't have to fight so hard and instead it was just embraced and accepted that this is a, you know, a cornerstone of the community, this music program, and you get to just do what you want with it, wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> wouldn't that be, though? What I, I've noticed yeah. here at the university, um, again, I, I've really, I've not wanted for much since I've been here. When I've needed things, it's been, I've, I've been able to, get what we need within reason. This last year is the first time that I was constrained by a budget for music. I was encouraged to not buy new music, which is an impossibility, especially in this year of needing flex Mm -hmm. repertoire. So I had to write grants to get music for a library. That's never happened to me before. Um, And at a university, the idea of fundraising is a totally different beast that a a high school band program can have a parent booster group fundraising for uniforms or fundraising for a trip or, you know, selling whatever you want. And we've gone through the motions here. I've had students selling things. Um, I've had them fundraising, um, writing grants, all of those things, but it's different. It's a very different beast at the university level that you don't have the same. I I don't have parents. I'm not going to call up my students' parents and say, can you help us? Um, I've had parents offer Parents have come and helped with certain things. Um, we, we did a silent auction a few years ago that one of our moms basically ran the whole thing, which was amazing, but I can't expect such a thing. And when you can't go, we all know I would ha- happily go and do all of this on top of what we do. You know, the fight for whatever it is, Kate, is that I, I'll do whatever it requires on top of all of the, the passion and energy that I put into the music. And hopefully it doesn't take away from that. That's what exhausts us and the concept of balance, right? That when you have to constantly fight for your own existence, that w- yeah. that's what creates the burnout. And so at the exactly. university, mm-hmm. uh, to not even have that as an option, that's been hard. To travel with students, mm-hmm. they have to fund their whole way through uh, yeah. a, a trip. And for undergraduate students, we don't have money. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, and none of them want to go and sell chocolate. <laughs> That's really not on their agenda yeah, of things yeah. they want to do. So many friends. So, there. I mean, it's, it's a different, a different feeling at the university. And if you don't have the university supporting you, yeah. um, you know, big schools in the States at, at the University of North Texas, the, the football team traveled. So the band traveled, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I got to travel and stay in hotel rooms and have all of my meals and things paid for on a band trip. Um, because they valued that because it was related to football, but that's fine. I, if it's related to football, I'll go to a game. (laughs) Take it. It doesn't matter. Exactly. (laughs) It will be you. Yeah. I've already been warned. And just seeing the difference in that level of support that Canadian universities, first of all, don't have that kind of a, a, an athletic support following or money in the Mm -hmm. same way. Um, so that's in some ways that can be disheartening. 
But at the same time, it just forces you to be creative about how you do something. How, how do we go to CBDNA, right? How do I get a band on a plane? <laughs> That's a, a story for a later podcast as well. Uh, it was not easy. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, you make it happen. And yeah. there, where there's a will, there's a way. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So in hearing about your story, it's clear that you've had some really fantastic role models and many of these people have been women. Um, so I wondered if you could tell us about, um, in your mind anyway, the importance of having role models that you can identify with and what conductors and educators can be doing to support and inspire their students. I, I'll start by saying I feel so grateful to be from Canada where being a woman never felt like a problem. Mm -hmm. I was never under the impression that I couldn't do something because of being female. And I'm, I know that I'm lucky versus a lot of people and a lot of people that came before me and the battles that would have had to be fought for me to feel that way. Uh, as soon as I moved to the United States, I became much more aware of the challenges that there was still a feeling of misogyny that I had never truly felt. I think upon reflection, I can think back and, and consider how things went down when I was probably way too young and shell-shocked to even be aware of where I might have been discriminated against, that it never felt that way to me. I, I maybe just didn't let it get to me. Um, yeah. I'm a daughter of a, a single mom. I lost my dad when I was quite young. So I was raised by a single mom who went back to school uh, in her 40s and uh, who raised three strong women to be independent, strong females. So I think it never occurred to me not to be that mm -hmm. and not yeah. to have goals and not to have dreams that I could reach out for. So I'm grateful for that. I will credit my mom first of all. Uh, and then moving through life, I, I just had really great um, friends. I had great um, mentors, as you said, some were my teachers, some were not going through that summer program. Um, the women that I met there and watching them conduct the first year that I watched some of the, these incredible women stand on a podium and move. I'll never forget Tanya Miller and the intensity that she showed on the podium. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I got to step up my game. I got to figure <laughs> this out. And just to be emboldened by seeing people doing it without that hindrance. So, yeah. uh, like I said, going to the States, I, I felt it a little bit at Northwestern where um, people didn't necessarily take the women who were with the marching band very seriously. Mm -hmm. um, that was an enlightening thing because I never felt like I was less than for any, any reason. Mm -hmm. And there I felt it. There, um, yeah. there was this feeling that the girls do pom-poms and aren't worth, you know, standing in front of a group. And I just felt it was ridiculous. It didn't seem even realistic in yeah. a way. It was laughable to me and, and yeah. didn't really affect me, I wouldn't say. But hearing some of Dr. Thompson's stories about how she was treated early on in her career, that she was one of the first and yep. uh, paid, you know, the price in a lot of cases that she wasn't going to take crap from people about it, but she had to go through it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm grateful that I, I made it in a time that um, it wasn't an issue. Um, I'm trying to think of any time that it really slowed me down, and I really can't. I, I think, if anything, it's only given me a different level of empathy. I think that there's something we bring to the podium as a woman that's slightly, again, it almost sounds sexist to say that, but 
as a, a woman, I'm a natural nurturer. Um, my students will all know I'll cry on, you know, <laughs> on a dime about any kind of music. If a <laughs> phrase goes the right way, I'll burst into tears, you know, in, in the best way possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. But being vulnerable, I think that's that's my word of of the last decade is putting yourself out there and taking the risks knowing that you're going to be okay mm -hmm. and that's what i want my students to feel is that they can stand on a podium particularly the young women who come and who feel um, rightfully intimidated to get in front of their peers and conduct i think there's nothing harder than that initial conducting for the people whose opinion you care about the most, which is your peers yeah, sure. and emboldening them to dance and to laugh and to, um, to move their bodies and uh, to be okay with it mm -hmm. and, and to take the risks that are necessary for what it is we do. Um, I feel so privileged to be able to, to help people with that and, and to make it okay. Um, I have two young boys. I'm a mama and my mantra with them is, you know, we need you to make mistakes. The only way you're going to learn things is to put yourself out there and try. Mm -hmm. um, and they have a hard time with it. You know, my young boys, they're not even young girls, but um, children to enable them and to make them understand that mistakes are necessary in life. And I want people to make mistakes. I want people to go on the podium and not worry that if they don't do a four pattern the right way that they're going to fail at everything they do. <laughs> you know, I say, yes, a yeah. four pattern, it's important to know how to do it. But is it the end all be all? No. Do you look like you're enjoying yourself? Do you look like the music? That's so much more important to me and is the much harder thing to do. I can teach, yeah. you know, a monkey to do a four, four pattern. <laughs> no problem. Um, but to teach someone to show their heart on a podium, man. That's, that's privilege, that's vulnerability. And I feel like that's a gift that I have, maybe in part because I am a woman, because I'm a mom, because of all of those uh, pieces. They uh, have kind of dubbed me Mama Schroeder here, that I, I kind of, nice. you know, I have my flock and kind of take care of all the, all the little, the little ones here a little bit. Yeah. Um, and again, I take that as a badge of honor that they trust me with that kind of a, a nurturing um, position while being Absolutely. in a, a position of authority as well, you know, and that's, that's also a fine balance that yeah. I do grade you. I do. I, I have to <laughs> look at you and assess what's going on, but yeah. I, I try to alleviate that early on and say, I believe every one of you has the, the greatest potential to be the best you, you can be. And if that means you all get an A because you work hard, then I would love to give you all A's. Yeah. So let's, let's get to that A together. Yeah. No, yeah. that's beautiful. What you said at the beginning, I was reminded when we first started having those, um, Canadian collegiate wind conductor meetings at the beginning of the pandemic. It was so inspiring to see how many in the country, how many female post-secondary leaders that we have there. And especially if, if Kate and I think if we just talk about even just our province alone, at each of the big schools in Ontario, we have Jillian McKay, we have Colleen Richardson at Western, we have Jessica Kuhn at Laurier, and now we have Cynthia Johnson-Turner coming to Laurier as well as the new dean. Yeah, so it's just yeah. like, I, and I often take it for granted uh, as I guess as a as a male who's in this field and and um, take for granted those experiences and those teachers that I've learned from and how that's going to affect uh, either the conducting students I've already had or my future students as well um, and and how I work with them and how and what what you know we choose to promote and and to champion as as professionals in this field so so thank you for championing that and others as well it's just it's so it's so great it's so great well, I, I like being able to show my students that you can be a parent and mm -hmm. do this too. Um, yeah. 
something I'm quite passionate about is being a mom yeah. and, and trying to figure out how can I do that piece of my life successfully while trying to be a full-time college professor. Um, we all have such crazy hours. I have performances on weekends. Mm -hmm. I work nights a lot of times. And so it's that idea of balance. I feel like balance isn't the right word for it is, um, it's how do you compensate in a way that when I'm at work, I work and I work hard and I focus on my work and I'm not spending all my time feeling badly that I'm not at home being a mom. Mm -hmm. When I'm at home, I'm being a mom. I'm being a wife. I'm being the, the happy homemaker, however that looks, you know, for the, the one hour. And let me be clear. I am no homemaker. <laughs> um, I, I definitely, I married up in the fact that my husband is the, the best uh, homemaker and he works full time. So that's not a, an accurate description of him either, but he feeds us. He does the cooking. He does a lot of the cleaning, you know, that without that kind of support, I, I really, I have no idea how I could do what I do. And I marvel at people, you know, single parents. I think back to my mom raising three girls, having to work full time. Mm -hmm. And how did she do it? I, I don't have a memory of how that went per se. I just know that I spent a lot of time with my mom and I know that my mom went to work. And when my mom was at work, she was at work. And so I want my boys to understand that um, their mom works hard. Their mom has a passion for what she does. And it's important that she goes and does her work. Mm -hmm. And that they hopefully will someday have the same kind of a drive and that they'll someday have that same kind of an empathy for the women in their lives, whoever they may be, and what that will look like. And if they become parents, how that will affect their decisions as parents, that we can do all of the things. I, I, I've never believed we can have it all, mm -hmm. but I feel like maybe I'm the closest to being able to say that, that I do honestly yeah. have it all. And it doesn't always look pretty and it's not always easy. And we struggle that there is stress involved and um, support for mental health is crazy important when you're trying to do all of these things. And you have to be ready for the moments when your kids need you and the moments that you have to know, I have to leave them. Mm -hmm. I have to go and do what's important to me as well. I have to, you know, I missed a Halloween, you know, it just about killed me to miss Halloween with my little yeah. boys getting dressed up. But that was my one chance to go to Thailand. Yeah. Was I not going to go to Thailand because of Halloween? Absolutely not. And <laughs> I, I don't think it's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. Maybe they'll deal with that in therapy someday. I don't know. <laughs> I highly doubt that for them, it will be that big of a loss. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But understanding that that's, there are sacrifices that come along with it and choices that you make and every choice you make has a consequence too. And um, I wouldn't change the choices. I really have loved being a mom, but I, I love my career just as much. Mm -hmm. And and my husband, God love him, he's the most supportive man. I, I feel like that if I could give any advice to anybody is you if you're going to have a partner in your life, and I hope that everyone will, they have to get what you do. They have to understand. And I dated a lot of musicians. And to musicians, I know it works in a lot of situations. For me, that was never going to work because it, it right. had to be um, the hours that this particular musician needed to keep, needed someone with a much more regular schedule right. to hold yeah. on tight and, and keep things going together. So it, it's understanding how to how to have that kind of a, a copacetic relationship where you can communicate about the needs and and he gets it that I, I'm not going to be there to make supper. Okay. He'll make supper. No big deal. Mm -hmm. It's covered and, and we've got it figured out between us and whatever works is whatever works. So mm -hmm. 
again, gratitude that it all works out the way <laughs> and as well as it does most of the time. Yeah. Well, it's, it's such an important thing to talk about. I mean, so often, I guess, especially my generation, we looked up to wind conductors or leaders that kind of ignored everyone and, you know, paid into their career and they were, you know, they, they just sacrificed so much that way. But to have examples like, like what you're talking about and also um, my teacher, Jason Kastler has been, that's part of the reason I wanted to do my doctorate with him um, was to hear about how much he values family and how much he values mm -hmm. his, his career as well. And, and, yeah, balance is not the right word. You're totally right. <laughs> and I well, tried to avoid I, and it. And again, I think about a lot of the a lot of the the names in our career, the older generation of men, mm -hmm. and that a lot of them have gone through a lot of personal turmoil yep. in yeah. loss of relationships and yeah. estrangement from families and, and things that um, the the costs that they had to go through to do this career. Mm -hmm. And we know the the famous story is Frank Battisti in his car yeah. in the parking lot at his high school, that they wanted to take a picture of the school and they couldn't because Frank's car was always in the parking lot blocking <laughs> the shot, right? And uh, that was always a badge of honor for people to work yeah. endlessly. And I, I think now that there is this balance of men and women sharing the load, it's, it's a different generation mm -hmm. of people who understand that the man isn't the only one who goes off to work. Yeah. Um, and that there has to be some balance of the domestic side of that, that it's a much healthier world that we're in and, and the recognition for that work and the recognition for the time at home, that dads that have to be at home at certain times because the moms are working. I think we're starting to get a, a, a closer picture. I still don't think it's in balance by mm -hmm. any stroke. I think okay. it's still very biased. And uh, there's been so many reports through the pandemic, particularly of, of the the turmoil that's caused women to take on the load of having kids at home in this year. Yeah. And or leaving their jobs because somebody had to. Exactly. To, yeah, and, yeah. you know, it's, it's a rare story where it's the husband who chose to stay home and to take the time yeah. off or to leave their career or whatever it was. It, it was a lot of women and a lot of women balancing in a lot of crazy ways. And um, I, I think of, I have a, a student who is young married with two young kids, had a baby, I think last February before the pandemic. And no, it had to be a year before. She was going back to work just before the pandemic. That's how it worked out and um, needed to go back. If she didn't go back, she wasn't going to have a job. And just seeing how she and her husband, she posted her schedule of how his shift was 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. Her shift was 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Then he would come from 11 a.m. to 2, that they split their day completely evenly to make it work. And I thought about that so much to say, that's an enlightened couple. That is the generation that we've raised. Those are the people who understand how to make this work. Mm -hmm. that it was a completely balanced schedule so both of them could have the success with their work, but they also had a balanced time to be home for this um, young infant that they needed to care for. Yeah. Um, it was inspiring. And I wonder that more people couldn't figure that out because it doesn't sound like yeah. that many people figured it out and not to their own, for their own fault. I mean, this was thrust upon everyone. So I hope we come out of this and recognize that sense of valuing the work of the home, valuing, yeah. you know, the time that you have at home. I think a lot of people have realized how great it is to work from home. 
Um, I've been through it with my husband uh, on a few occasions now that he's worked from home. Uh, He's had positions where he was able to have an office at home and even part-time that he could be at home for certain days when my boys were young as well. Mm -hmm. And we've both always worked in academia. So that has helped and worked to our advantage too, that we understand each other's schedules um, and have some flexibility in academia as well. But um, not everyone is so lucky and the world needs to shift. I hate to say we've got to figure this out a little bit better. And I I know those are ongoing conversations. Yeah, for sure. Uh, You mentioned, you know, some of the joys of working from home and you also mentioned mental health. And so I would like to talk about nature. One of my very favorite things, as everybody in the world knows about me. Um, And so you've been sharing photos and videos on social media almost daily uh, with the hashtag a year on my feet. Uh, and I saw, I did a little bit of Facebook stalking. I, apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I saw one of your posts. Um, I'm going to quote you here. You said, nature has provided solace and clarity, and I'm grateful for the time and space I have created for it in my life. And that just resonated so strongly with me. And so we'd love to hear you speak more about your intention to make time for nature and how this has impacted your year so far. I would love to talk about this. Um, Mental health has become a huge part of being a professor at a university. Um, University students have lots of struggles that I've been um, made so much more aware of. And not that everyone doesn't, but the, the specific challenges to undergraduate students particularly have been so highlighted to me. And so initially, I'll be perfectly frank, the way that this started was when I got a dog. My dog was, that makes sense. Really, I I wanted to get a dog so that I would get out of the house and get off my butt and and move. And, you know, we love our dog, and he's been a tremendously wonderful addition to our family. My dog, Waffles, have to give him a shout out. Um, He's wild and crazy and insane, and uh, I adore him. And he has been one of the main things that has gotten me out of the house. But when the pandemic hit, it became much more apparent that there was very little else we were going to do and that I was going to, you know, suffer with my own mental health if I didn't get out of the house. And so we did, you know, longer walks. I started exploring Edmonton um, and I've discovered the beauty of this city. So again, being a Calgarian, I've always kind of rejected the notion that Edmonton is good in any way, shape or form. (laughs) But this year has changed that for me dramatically. Um, I've discovered the river valley here in Edmonton in a way that I had never before. We'd gone on walks and I'd seen it and, you know, spent some time, but not intensely. And so being able to go and, and to breathe in nature and to be able to go and photograph nature, I think that's the thing that has turned for me that uh, in the fall when the highest stress of trying to do online ensemble and um, online school in some cases for kids here and there, my time for myself had to be carved out. I had to find deliberate times. And so I made it a priority to get out, you know, three, maybe four times a week. And then that started to diminish. And I noticed it was diminishing the busier you get at school and all of that. Um, I was doing it less and less. And so it was kind of, I I won't say a new year's resolution because I hate new year's resolutions, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but it was um, intentional to try to find a purpose for this. 
And I was really enjoying the photography and I've I found this really cool app called Prisma where I'm playing with my photographs and turning them into artwork. Yeah. Um, I've started, I've tried doing some painting this year as well. Nice. I'm terrible. I, I don't have any gift <laughs> for it. It's enjoyable, but I, I don't make beautiful things. And so being able to take these really gorgeous photos in nature and turn them into art was inspiring. So I started seeking things out that I could photograph and noticing the beauty all around me and noticing how I felt better about myself and better about everything we were going through. And I felt healthier. And so it did become more intentional with the hashtag you're talking about that um, I like to have something to kind of give me some direction as everybody needs, you know. So that was my uh, start off to the year in January to say, I'm going to try for this. Let's see if I can do, you know, every day getting out and see what it feels like. And then my whole family got COVID in January and we were home, you know, the whole family was stuck at home basically for yeah. the better part of four weeks, getting through it all, um, making sure everybody was healthy and not sending people back to school mm -hmm. before they were well and all of mm -hmm. the rest. And that's when it became truly apparent how important this had become because I felt it yeah. deeply. I can't leave the house. I can't walk. Oh my gosh, this is, you know, almost yeah. more tragic than getting COVID in a way that I can't do these walks. I, I'm losing time. I said I was going to do the year on my feet and I'm <laughs> yeah. out. And that's why I don't want it to be a resolution that I failed at. I want it to just be, yeah. you know, this generic idea of I want to be on my feet as much as possible that moving through nature is what is giving me that clarity to to keep perspective and to keep yeah. um, in my mind that sense of of calm because we all have those moments where things go crazy and I, I don't know about both of you I get songs in my head I get tunes spinning Constantly. and cannot get them out <laughs> yeah, never, right? It doesn't happen. Um, all the time, all the time. And so the goal Dylan too is was... just chasing sunlight. Just <laughs> My wife gets upset with me. It's like I never shut oh, up. I'm always singing. I know. Something. Just the do, 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 you know, making the sounds. Like I do that all day long when I'm in the middle of a program, particularly. Um, and knowing that it drives my family crazy. And when you're stuck in the house, <laughs> it's not <laughs> better. no escape. <laughs> and so, I mean, I go and I listen to music. I listen to podcasts. I take my camera. I take my dog. Uh, sometimes I take my children, you know, sometimes willingly, sometimes not willingly. <laughs> and, and just try to embrace, you know, an Edmonton winter, for example, that that's enough yeah. to put anybody into a, a <laughs> mental health spiral to get through the, the darkness of winter and the coldness. And as everyone says, there's no bad weather, there's just bad clothing. So I would yeah. bundle up, you know, in the coldest of days, I, I still got out into these crazy cold days with uh, awesome. my eyelashes freezing to each other. And, <laughs> I mean, it, it was, in a way, just uh, inspiring to challenge myself. Can I go out? It's, it's minus 30. Mm -hmm. Can we do this? Yeah, we can do this. It's fine. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. I, I feel pretty proud. And whether it's every day or not, I kind of, uh, maybe you've seen these charts where you color in a piece of a picture for every day of a year. And by the end, mm -hmm. you see almost the whole picture, you know, you might have some yeah. gaps and yeah. things. And mine is by month. So it's the, the letters of January, you've got one for every day of January, mm -hmm. February, March. So I've got a blank spot in January. And yeah. that's fine. I will accept that blank spot because it was also a time where we had to go through something historic. I, I didn't never really expected that I would actually get COVID. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm again, blessed that it was not more severe and that we all came mm -hmm. out unscathed yeah. out of that. Um, 
thankful for that, thankful for the vaccines now. I, I can't say enough about science and how much I believe in this and how much I want everyone to go and get one because I want to get back to band. I want yes, to get back yes. to rehearsal. <laughs> we you know? yeah. that, that's the, the piece of me that's missing. And so all yeah. of these walks and all of the nature has been trying to fill that need in me that I, I can't fill. I haven't had my ensemble. I haven't had that yeah. the fix of what I need this year. So I'm hoping that I can keep the balance going. We're, we're intentionally um, trying to be um, optimistic about being in person in the fall. Of course, mm -hmm. we know yeah. we're all going to be at the mercy of this virus. But um, looking forward to that possibility of, of returning to a normalcy while still keeping this piece of nature and walking as a part of my routine, a part of every day. Yeah. yeah. So wish me luck. Good luck. <laughs> I'll try to be right there with you. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a, a really important thing and it's only something actually, I guess since I started doing the podcast and, and talking to people and talking to creators and creative people about the importance of getting away from this lovely screen that I love so much, or if it's, you know, <laughs> in deep into a score, I know you need to be out outside and getting that kind of inspiration and letting things, you know, rest inside the mind and grow in their own way. It's, it's just so important. And it's great to hear you, uh, you talk about that as well. And um, we've sadly come to the last official question of this uh, episode. Um, but before we do that, I will remind everyone that the three of us are going to go on to record a legendary bonus episode I'm just saying that to sell it. I don't know what it's going to be about. Um, but you can hear that bonus episode if you go to patreon.com slash bandroompod where you can become part of our Patreon community and uh, and benefit from some wonderful bonus content, including episodes and more. Um, but before we get to that, Dr. Angela Schroeder, if you could share, I don't know why I'm building this up so much. I'm so sorry. Um, if you could share one no piece pressure, of No pressure, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, my palms are sweaty. Um, <laughs> if you could share one piece of advice to up and coming conductors, music educators, what would it be? I think it, it's multifaceted. It, it can't be one piece of advice. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you have to be willing to work hard. Okay, let me go back a step. The advice I was given from my teacher, Dr. Thompson, many years ago, she would say, not everybody wants to work this hard. You have to decide, are you willing to take this on? Are you willing to work this hard? And it's okay if you're not. That I will say to my students, too, that sometimes they come to music school and they figure out quickly that this is not for them. Mm -hmm. And I say, if you can walk away from it, you should walk away from it. That if you aren't prepared for everything that comes along with this, the the strife of being alone in a practice room for years of your life, the yeah. agony of weekend work, giving up your weekends with non-musician friends, of sacrificing holidays, of, of all of the things that go along with it, then, then don't do it. Um, but having said that, I think it's being true to who you are, that we can't all be our heroes. I can't be... Eugene Corporon or Mallory Thompson. I have to be the best Angela Schroeder that I can be. And I have to take that uh, energy and talent and drive and passion where I am and influence as many people in my periphery as I possibly can. I think a lot of people spend a lot of time looking for the best gig that they're, they're 
waiting for the next best gig, whatever mm-hmm. comes. And I believe that we need to make our gigs for ourselves, that we need to be self-starters. We need to find ways to influence that are new and unique and, and to take those chances as you, not just because somebody else did it, you know, um, yeah. and deciding what that's going to look like for you. There are some people who are driven to be principal trumpet player in an orchestra and, and good for you. I think we know that the likelihood of that in so many cases is so few and far between mm-hmm. that if that's your only goal, then you might suffer and you might starve for a while. Yeah. So you have to be willing to look at what comes along and what can you contribute to the environment that you have been put in, wherever that is. And don't be afraid to change that environment, that mm-hmm. the simple act of me leaving Canada to go somewhere else gave me energy enough to bring it back and do something with it. So look for those opportunities when they pop up, take them. If there's a summer program that you can be a part of, it changed my life. Be willing and open to all of those possibilities. Don't let anything hold you back. And and be yourself more than anything else is just be you and, and do the best you that you possibly can, whatever you choose to do. I know that that advice was supposed to be for like <laughs> up and coming conductors and music people, but like that hit me personally. <laughs> I I felt like tears coming out. That doesn't happen to me very much. So thank you so much for sharing that. I, think I, that's, I believe that's it. That's really profound. Thank you. I, I really believe that, that I think yeah. um, uh, if I can be personal about it, I think I spent a lot of my life hoping to be something that I'm not hoping mm-hmm. for something different or better or expecting myself to do things in a certain way. And it didn't serve me. And yeah. finding that ability to accept um, what what do I have at my disposal around me that I can do my best with, um, yeah. that that's changed my perspective. And, you know, do I have the greatest um, students? Yes, I do. I will absolutely say I have the greatest students. Um do I get the greatest players in the world here at the U of A? Not always. I have some wonderful, amazing people and I make them better. Mm-hmm. I expose them to things that are going to make them better so that they can go out in the world and pass it on. I think that's really what music is, is we're passing this on down generations of people that those who passed it to me from elementary school until now, I've had influences all the way through that have made me better. And I think we constantly keep making each other better. And I, I keep in touch with all of my colleagues and my teachers because they will continually make me better by watching mm-hmm. their online performances or hearing their podcasts or all of those things that we can be inspired by so many influences in the world and then influence what we have around us. So I, yeah. that's really made my perspective um, of being, you know, somewhat, I feel like in Canada, we, we are a little bit remote from things in some cases. Yeah. Again, this pandemic has taught us that that's not true. We can be everywhere mm-hmm. and anywhere that we <laughs> want to be um, yeah. quite amazingly. And so the influence I can have here in Edmonton can then mm-hmm. go further, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm inspired by all of those things that I can give to students and that they will then pass on as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm also reminded of a word of advice from uh, another fellow uh, North Texas grad, Wendy McCollum. And she, and oh, she was told at some point, um, bloom where you're planted. And I, oh, and I, beautiful. and I think that's, yeah, just kind of what you're talking about. And 
you know, I think, like you said, many of us get obsessed maybe with being the best and taking over the world. But, but certainly mm-hmm. to, to think about your sphere of, uh, of, of inspiration of, of who you can affect is, is really important. Speaking of which, uh, today has just been uh, such a treat uh, to be able to speak with you. And um, I, I count my lucky stars every week that we get to do this. And especially when it's someone that I, I don't know a lot about, but I've you know yeah. respected from afar for a, a long time. It's so great um, to hear your oh, stories so and to hear about how, I mean, you've spoken so much about how it's such a passion of yours to make others better. And I, and I really truly mean this, but this discussion today has, has made us better, I think. So thank you so much for yeah. taking the time Absolutely. for being on the podcast. And I can't wait till hopefully we can meet in person and all that fun stuff. But thank you so much, Angela. I thank you for asking. It's been a pleasure to talk with both of you. And I look forward to seeing you in person and giving hugs. I miss hugs. (laughs) (laughs) Soon. One day soon. It will happen. It will happen. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for spending time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything that we discussed in today's episode, check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom Podcast. Give us a rating and review and tell all your friends about how much you enjoyed it. If you really love the show, maybe you should consider donating to our Patreon page where you can support BRP and get some extra incentives in return. Or you can buy some sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website, bandroompod.com, and your comment might be featured in a future episode of BRP. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the band room. <laughs>